I think it's really easy to have meetings where you talk about what's right for the business. What's easy to do on our roadmap? What resources do we have to do this or that? And it's really easy to just like turn your back on what matters, which is your customer and what's right for them. So I just think you have to have someone in your company and hopefully multiple people in your company that really, when they go into meetings, they recognize that part of their role is to embody the customer in that meeting. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Amanda, welcome to the show. This is one of those episodes where last night I would wake up and I would write down notes because I was so excited to talk to you. I had a workout class this morning, and the point of me doing these workout classes is to not think of anything. And all I could do was think about how excited I was to ask you all these questions. So anyway, I can't imagine the excitement is mutual, but welcome. And we're so excited to have you. Thank you so much, Jubin. Good to be here. Okay. So I start all of these things off the exact same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. I will butcher something when I do. Please correct me. And we can use that as kind of a jumping off point. Fair? Sounds good. Okay. You got your bachelor's in business from the University of Washington. Then you went to Yale. You got your MBA, went to Agilent Technologies. You spent six years as an IT project manager. Then Google as a product marketing manager for two and a half years. Then you went to Zendesk. You were employee number 12 at Zendesk starting in about 2009. You had an incredible seven-year run there that I would love to explore with you, starting as the VP of product marketing, year and a half, then the GM of the online business for about a year. SVP of online velocity business for six months. And then that culminated in the SVP of go-to-market strategy for six months. As I read this, my dates don't all add up there, but anyway. And then you uh, became an advisor to Airtable, advisor to SmartLink for a couple of years. And then you found Figma. You joined Figma in 2018 as the chief customer officer and you lead marketing sales and support there. You've been there for three years. And as of this morning, it has been publicly announced that Figma just raised at a $10 billion valuation from Durable Capital. <laughs> that sounds like a good run, huh? Holy hell. It's like you never screwed up or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of screw up, did I screw anything up? You spent seven years at Zendesk, right? Yeah. Each job that I had in there, you know, I'm not a math major, but that did not add up to seven. What was your longest job at Zendesk? It's hard to say because I had maybe five or six jobs there, different roles in marketing. I did whatever we needed, you know, so different roles in marketing. I started like a new, new online group at some point. So maybe the first one I, I got hired initially as the first marketer to help build out marketing. So probably that director of marketing was the longest one, but it evolved pretty fast. I want to talk a lot about Figma. I have many questions. We've been working with you at Kleiner for quite some time. So I have pretty much infinite questions. There's almost zero chance that we're going to get this done in the hour that I allotted for us. First question that I have for you, why'd you leave Google? Like that was kind of the renaissance of Google, 2007, 2009. Things were pretty good there. I assume you're having success. Why'd you leave? Yeah. Well, it starts with how I started there because 
I had worked in IT early on in my career. I actually started my career in Germany. I worked in Germany for almost five years. So that really set the precedent for a lot of how I thought about work and life and how to balance the two. But I went to get an MBA at Yale because I wanted to get closer to the core competency of a company. When you're in the back office IT, you don't even have to know what the company sells. And that really bothered me. So I got this job in marketing at this small company called Postini, security SaaS company. And I think literally like the day before I started, it got acquired by Google. So I called up my soon to be manager and said, you know, do I still have a job? And he said, yeah, come on in. (laughs) And so that's how I ended up working at Google. So I had actually really wanted to work at a small company. Here I was in (laughs) Silicon Valley and I'd worked at HP and Agilent, which were these mega companies. And and so I wanted that startup experience and then that got hijacked by Google. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go work at Google. But then a couple of years later, I was like, you know, I I really want to go back to that goal I had, which was to go work somewhere early. So that's why I left and found Zendesk. When you found Zendesk, you're employee number 12. You took that business. I mean, your resume is just insane. I mean, this is like, it's just like, I don't know if it's luck or skill or both. I'd prefer to be lucky than good, but it is insane the companies that you have hit right now. You took Zendesk from 12 to 2,000 employees, from 1 million to 300 million in revenue and an IPO. So I tell the story of when I was at my last startup, we went from, three to 12 in two years. And that felt insane. Like three to 12 felt like revenue felt crazy. And when we got acquired, everyone says, what'd you think? How was it? And I always say my biggest regret was not having a longer run at it because that feeling of growth is so crazy. So anyway, I just imagining myself in your shoes at these companies. Can I ask you a specific question? Of course. You said at Zendesk, so you were kind of a jack of all trades there. And you, in the context of pricing, you said that you made a lot of changes in pricing, but ultimately one of the best things that you did was you logged all of the changes that you made. And you would look back at those pricing changes retrospectively to, I think, understand your decision-making. Is that right? (laughs) That is a very specific question. Yeah, we did do that. Partly for practical reasons, because we had new people joining all the time and they needed to understand, like, why do we have customers on these old pricing models and what was that about? So it was more like a a history of decisions and things. But also it it was interesting to look back on it and just remind yourself, like, oh, yeah, we we did that because of that at the time. So, yeah, we did. We did keep a log. Did you keep a log of any other changes? For a while, I kept a log of how many people I interviewed because I felt like I was interviewing a lot of people and wanted to keep track of it. Why? Well, it was the first time in my career that I interviewed a lot of people. And so it was just kind of an interesting new motion for me to really get good at. And I've definitely evolved how I interview people over time and as my role changes, but I don't know. It was just a funny thing to keep track of 
because it, I spent so much time doing it. I wanted to know like how many people have I talked to at Figma? I actually keep a journal of different major milestones that happen to me each week. I don't necessarily write in it every week, but it's kind of fun to go back and look at what was on my mind on a certain week a year ago. So I've done that because I wished I had done that at Zendesk and I didn't. When you look back at the log of interviews, how much time maybe approximated as a percentage do you think you spent interviewing? Oh boy. I mean, 30 or 40% of every workday was spent interviewing. Certainly certain years early on. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of time. And do you remember how many people it was? (laughs) Stop. I stopped keeping track. (laughs) (laughs) So you take that 30 to 40%. And when you walk into Figma, did you think that number should be higher or lower? Ooh, I hadn't thought about it, but I knew it was going to be at least about the same which it's been that way for sure, certain weeks, yes. And of that 40% that you spend time interviewing, so let's take that aside. So you have another, let's say 50 to 60. How much time are you spending coaching and teaching the organization how you would interview? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, not enough, not enough. Yeah. You know, we do debriefs with our interview panel internally, and I think you learn a lot about how people interview with how they debrief. So I think we probably teach each other different tricks during those sessions, which is good. But I mean, we are just fast and furious right now at Figma, and I I wish we had a lot more enablement than we do across the company, but it's just we're trying to do a lot, so... Not as much as I'd like, but I try. Do you have any tricks or tips, any things that are unique to Amanda that you use to teach interviewing skills? The way that I do it is I am absurdly detailed in the notes that I write for candidates because I want everyone to know, A, how much it matters, but B, exactly what and how I'm evaluating for certain traits and qualities. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you do Mm -hmm. it? How do you think about it? Well, at Figma, our recruiting team is excellent, and they require us to be actually quite disciplined about, okay, who's on the panel? What is everyone testing for? What's the ideal candidate look like? The hiring manager will often even write out certain questions that people might ask in the process. So it's actually quite structured. I think it's important to be structured. I generally try to ask pretty specific questions because I want to see specific kind of answers. But I also like to leave it a little bit open too, just to see what kind of rapport gets built and and how things evolve naturally in an interview. So I, I try to have a little bit of structure and a little bit of openness too. All right, one more question on, on Zendesk and then Figma. Again, this just reads like, 12 to 2,000, 1 to 300, IPO, you know, New York Stock Exchange, yada, yada, yada. What was the worst part about that experience? What was your lowest moment? At Zendesk. At Zendesk. Well, 
I don't know that there was any major low, low moment, but I'd say over the course of seven years, it got a little bit less fun every year. And it was still fun at the end, but it just, like when I first started there, I would jump out of bed on Monday morning. I was so excited to go to work and I had never had that feeling before. So I was learning so much. I learned more in the first six months there than I had in my entire preceding career. I had just never been part of a high growth company like that early on. And I just think you learn so much. It's certainly not a place for everyone, but I just really thrived in the ambiguity. I thrived in the problem solving of it. I thrived with my colleagues that we had fantastic people there that really cared about interesting things and we'd have great conversations and, and just, you know, 2000 people later, it's, it's a different feel. So, and when you go public, it gets more structured and some of the, like the spontaneity of things kind of gets killed a little bit. Were you thriving in the existential, are we a company moment part of it? Like 12 people, that's barely a company yet. You know, <laughs> like you're, you know, 1 million of revenue. We're not at product market fit yet, really. Maybe we're close. Maybe we're scratching at it. We certainly don't know we're going to be a 300 million revenue company at some point. You love that part? I had just never experienced that before. And when you've never experienced it, it was just very exciting. Yeah. I mean, when I joined Zendesk, we already had Twitter as a customer. And Twitter was a tiny company then, but Twitter was was already a big brand name. And we had we had some other e-commerce companies. Scribd, Books a Million, like, you know, those kind of companies that had brand names, but they were kind of scrappy SMB type companies. I mean, Zendesk had 10,000 customers before we hired our first salesperson, but they were mostly SMBs. So yes, it was a million-ish in ARR, but it was a lot of really small customer. So yeah. the volume was there. The product market fit, I would argue, was there for SMB 100%. What was harder to figure out was product market fit for enterprise over time. Because what happened was we won companies like Uber and Airbnb when they were also tiny. And then yeah. they grew and yep. became enterprises. And we either had to grow with them or we were going to lose them as customers. So that's how we were forced up market. I've heard you say, again, I'm not going to do a good job attributing where I heard you say it, but you said that, and this was in reference to Zendesk, the worst thing was watching great people leave a great company to go chase a salary at a week startup, all because they didn't think through what was most important does the startup have a chance of making it? When you look back on that run, do people still reach out to you like, I can't believe I did that? And obviously, the writing was on the wall for you that it was going to be a good ride. And even in the Kleiner portfolio, it's so obvious how many good rides some folks are about to go on. But the conversations that I have with some of these heads of sales or early employees they can't get their heads out of the weeds. 
And I tell him or her, look up. Like, this is about to be insane. And I tell them, honestly, something very similar, which is do not leave. Like, what are you worried <laughs> about right now? Like, point one of equity or the 20K on your OTE, you're being nuts. Like, you're going to miss an incredible ride, probably because of your ego. How did you mean it? Because I see that all the time. Very similar. That's how I mean it. Because, well, I was so motivated to go to work every day because of the ride that we were on. Like it was so exciting to be winning new customers and be part of this organization that was changing so fast. And I could see that big picture of growth. And I thought, it doesn't matter what title I have, what role I have, because if I stay here through this journey, I'm going to have so many stories to tell of what we did right, what we did wrong, and what role I played in it. And so, frankly, like, yes, I got some titles at the end, but I started with, you know, a director of marketing role. And I think I did well because I was excited about what I was doing every day. And if you can find yourself just excited about it, then the success you have at a company, I think is going to naturally come. And so I get sort of sad when I see people who all they can think about is, are the titles on my resume lining up with my expectations, with my parents' expectations, with you know, my partner's expectations. And if it's not, then I got to move on. And isn't that normal for everyone to move on every two years? But I would guess that almost all of your guests on your podcast, they stayed somewhere for a significant amount of time because you have to stay somewhere to gain that experience, to gain that traction and to show you can really have an impact somewhere. And if you're jumping around every two years trying to chase titles and salaries and all that, I just think you're hurting yourself. I could not agree more. I actually talked to one of my guests earlier this week about this. And one of the things that stood out to me that was a clear signal that I've seen so many times that, you know, two dots don't make a line, but 50 certainly do. Every single guest every single one has had one great run. They've all had one great run. The irony is the reasons they're leaving are the things that they could solve for with that one great run. Like you want to stack titles, it's way easier to do it at one company that's growing really quickly than continuing to leave companies. Like your growth can't go faster than some of these fast growing companies. Nobody is gonna be able to outpace Zendesk or Figma. You can't do it. And at some point, if you're one of these companies, they need people. They just need people in these bigger jobs. And it might as well be you. You might not have the skill yet, but you have all of the like cultural knowledge. You have all of the domain expertise of like what's going on in the business. You have the trust of your peers. And by the way, it's healthy to promote up. People want to do that. You can't keep hiring from outside all the time. I know. I was talking to my friend who, who leads a sales team over at Databricks just the other day. And she said, I am so convinced that if I can promote from within, it's so much better for me. 
she has major preference for that. And I couldn't agree more. I'd love to promote people from within if we can. So always looking to do that. All right, last question on this, and this is just Jubin's curiosity running wild. Did you get to offer anyone redemption from Zendesk at Figma? Someone that worked for you that you knew was talented, that left too early, and they were like, I'm not missing this one again. Did you do that? Did you ever give anyone a second chance at this crazy run at Figma from Zendesk? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. We, well, we had people that boomeranged back to Zendesk. After realizing that that was so idiotic. A number of people. And some in my team in particular, different teams I had, we had boomerangs. So that was always great to have people come back. Had someone go off to Apple, come back. Someone go off to other startups and come back. So it was across the board, big and small companies. And I'm trying to think at Figma if we have any boomerangs yet. But definitely have some... People from Zendesk at Figma, and I'm trying to think through different scenarios. But I mean, at this point, I think when you pick two winners, maybe it's not quite a trend yet, but (laughs) hopefully I'm building a reputation that I can pick winners. No doubt. Okay, so speaking of Figma, the cap table, Index, Greylock, Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia, A16Z, Andreessen did it at a $2 billion valuation. And then this morning, Durable Capital Series E at a $10 billion valuation. I believe that the history books will say that Durable got a good deal on this company. Let me read you, and I don't think Mamoon will mind, but if he does, we can edit this out. In his memo for his fundraise, which was right before you, this was November of 2017. I think you joined maybe five months after that. Mm-hmm. What he said was that this is a multi-billion dollar revenue opportunity for a collaborative interface design product that over time has the potential for Adobe's scale. And he's right. Like, I actually think this is the next Adobe. And I'll tell you what, it was really annoying because during this fundraise, I didn't even realize I had this many friends in private equity and finance and the ways that I was being used as an API to access Dylan and Mamoon was a joke. And little do they know, I can't do anything for them. Like this, this thing has been baking forever. And so I'd say, Mamoon, like, what do you want me to tell him? And he's like, look, if they want to send blind term sheets at whatever valuation they deem to be the right one, they're more than welcome to. But Dylan is not taking meetings with anybody. Like he's just not. He only has... <laughs> a finite amount of time that's being spent on building the business, the rest of which is being spent cultivating the few relationships that he's been having for years, right? For years. So if you didn't see the Adobe potential three years ago and start working on this thing, you're probably not going to get his attention. Okay, so what do you do? The question that Dylan asked years ago that really resonated and I thought encapsulated what Figma does really nicely is he said, Why is the text editor, Google Docs, collaborative and the design editor not? I think that does a great job describing Figma. Yes. And the market behind this thing. So companies like IBM, which are, you know, I wouldn't say on the bleeding edge of of, of anything anymore. Their design to developer hiring targets went from 72 to 1 to 8 to 1 over the last five years. I suspect that's even closer to like five, four to one today. So like design and companies that do design well 
are uniquely differentiated in today's market. And so those are really, really nice tailwinds. When I ask people about the Figma business, and by the way, I will preface with, I'm obviously biased, but this is all like pretty sincere what I'm saying. Go to Figma Twitter, go to Figma Twitter and just freaking read. It's like the way people swoon over good looking celebrities. It's un- I've never seen anything like it. And now in company pitches that we see, it's the freaking Figma for X, Y, or Z. Everything is the Figma for this or that, which is like, that's when you know we are in quite rarefied air. Have you gotten any founders pitching in Figma with slides? Yeah. Yeah. Many. A lot. That happens all the time. Yeah. I've heard that. That happens all the time. And look, like if you're a founder and you're pitching to Kleiner, you should probably use Loom and Figma. You know, like you should probably <laughs> figure out different ways to pro present. Pro tip, pro tip out there. Yeah, exactly. Question for you. Can you tell us the story of trying to sell yourself out of Figma when you're leaving Zendesk? Trying to sell myself out of Figma, leaving Zendesk? Yeah, you were trying to not join Figma. Like there was an article that you wrote <laughs> and... Can you talk about the awkward dinner when the offer came and you were going to dinner with Dylan? And then when you were leaving Zendesk, you were enjoying life. You just had this crazy run. Last (laughs) thing you wanted to do was jump back in. Can you tell us that story, please? Okay, okay. Well, so I left Zendesk without a job. I thought seven plus years, I need a break. So I didn't line up anything. And actually, I was advising Airtable and Smartlane. I ended up doing a project for outreach too. But other than that, I really wasn't talking to people, recruiters, because I really just wanted to take a break. So I was on a break, having a great time. John Lilly reached out to me from Greylock and I went and met him. And then he told me this really lovely story about how he met Dylan, turned down the opportunity at first, and then later decided to invest in Series A. And so I became intrigued. And I met Dylan and Dylan, Dylan was looking for a head of marketing and I was really not looking for a job. (laughs) And we just kept talking. I really liked him. And then I, I was investigating Figma more and I just, I got started getting excited, but I, I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to start using an alarm clock again. <laughs> and I just wasn't quite ready, but I also was excited about talking about the business. And I think he noticed that I was talking about the customer a lot because that's how I orient a lot of my thinking And so then I think he started realizing, oh, if I'm going to lure someone like this in, we've got to be more creative about what the role is. And so we started talking about how in self-service world, when you start layering on sales, you should be intentional about it and having someone who can think holistically across the whole revenue picture and the whole entire customer journey is really actually quite beneficial in the early years. And so we started talking about this role that went across all of go-to-market. And 
So I got there before the dinner. The dinner was actually a celebration of the offer. So it was quite fun. But it was kind of a funny little dance for me to get there emotionally and for Dylan to like make it happen. So (laughs) why did you want sales marketing success? Well, there were a couple things I was pretty passionate about that were lessons I learned from Zendesk, which was we ended up having like seven sales segments at some point. And I thought, man, we've made this really complicated for not a lot of benefit. And I wanted to rethink that a little bit more in the early times of a company. We also did something where early on we created a whole success team and an account management team, which I always thought really muddied the water with the customer because it was like, who really owns the relationship there? And I know this is a very common way for companies to structure themselves with success in account management, but with a product like Figma, you don't have a lot to set up. It's a pretty easy product to start using right away. And so I just thought if we can keep things really simple for as long as possible, that's going to benefit us a lot. And we also have this natural division between self-service and sales assisted with our plan types. So our professional tier is pretty much all self-service. And so sales is very focused on finding those enterprise accounts that can use our top plan. And so we've just, I think, set up a much cleaner, simpler way to have a relationship with our customer and use both the self-service motion and the sales assisted motion to really optimize how we do business. So I was excited about being able to have the opportunity to influence and impact that. Yeah. You talk a lot about the customer. You're kind of notorious at Kleiner for being obsessed with the customer's journey, and we're thankful for it. One of the things that I've heard you say in the past is that people aren't afraid to solve funnel issues when you couch it in what would the customer want us to do. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's really easy to have meetings where you talk about what's right for the business. What's easy to do on our roadmap? What resources do we have to do this or that? And it's really easy to just like turn your back on what matters, which is your customer and what's right for them. So I just think you have to have someone in your company and hopefully multiple people in your company that really when they go into meetings, they recognize that part of their role is to embody the customer in that meeting. And when you point out like what the customer would think of something or what would our users do to react to this decision, it just becomes a much different conversation that other people can't refute because of course we should all care about how our users are going to react. And so if you can even back that up with quotes of what customers have said about us or data that helps support like how customers use different things, it's just so powerful in decision making. Do you also think that helps communication channels up to someone like Dylan, the CEO? As an example, Dylan is kind of a classic archetype of investments that we like to make and and certainly other venture firms where it's the 
super genius, the product guru, right? You build the product, they will come. If you can couch all of the sales feedback into we are the voice of the customer, do you think that resonates a lot more with someone like Dylan or the product team, making sure that they feel like this is actually not sales thinking for themselves, trying to get the deal done, et cetera, but really acting on behalf of what's best for our user? I think what's important for him is that we're making decisions as a business that are more product-driven than sales conversation-driven, perhaps. And that doesn't mean we don't care what the customer thinks. It just means it's oriented towards how is the product going to be better for customers rather than how can we adopt something that helps a customer's contract be better. Yep. And the other thing about Dylan is he was very adamant early on of how we go about hiring salespeople. So we have a very intentional process where we put candidates through that they have to give a demo of Figma. I don't know how long we'll continue to do this for, but for now it's actually worked really well because even though we don't expect people to give a perfect demo of Figma, it's such a telling experience to see if someone has the aptitude to get into the lingo of design and really embody someone that we think designers are going to be have an enjoyable conversation with. And that's important to us because our community, I'd argue, is part of our competitive edge. And we want our community to actually like our sales team. And they do, actually. We get quite a lot of customers reporting on what a wonderful experience they've had with sales reps. While we're on this topic, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of something that we've done in hiring for sales. We have a cultural value in our company around building community and building inclusive communities, both internally and externally. And so we care a lot about diversity in hiring and software sales teams are often not very diverse, but we've got a quite balanced gender ratio in our team. And even more importantly, in sales leadership, it's more than 50% identify as female, which I'm pretty proud of and excited to be able to tell candidates about when we talk to them. That's amazing. I think I'm at 35 to 40% right now of all of my guests have been female, which I'm quite proud of considering the industry average for female sales leaders is 2%. So not quite there yet. And I think it's awesome that, that you all are doing that. Was there a moment that you realized, whoa, this thing is going to be giant? Can I tell you my moment and then you can tell me yours? Sure, sure. I introduced you to some big company, some huge Fortune 500. And you go into the meeting with this deck and it's a three-year timeline that's a topography of their Figma usage. And it's like a networked map, okay, with all these <laughs> dots and all these circles that are big and small that are representative of different teams within their organization. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And each year, 
the page just became more and more blue with these circles. And then they started to show up as Venn diagrams. And by the current state, everybody was using Figma. That was basically, (laughs) that was eligible to use it. And that moment, first of all, I was like, that's the coolest sales pitch I've ever seen. Like, you're not even selling. You're just showing the CIO how their organization is using Figma. That was the moment for me that I was like, oh boy, like this thing is going to be a monster. What was it for you? Was it a conference, a deal, a key hire? Was it something like that? Was there any tells that helped you see into the future? Yeah, I think every quarter we have deals that I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to be big. (laughs) So for sure. And I keep getting trumped of those like wow moments. So well, because every quarter you're absolutely destroying the number. Like yeah. it is like <laughs> it is just blowing out every single quarter, like by a huge margin. Yeah. And by the way, fairly predictably. Like you kind of know you're gonna do it going into it. Oh which my is- god, don't say that. It makes me <laughs> nervous. Yeah, I think those are always so exciting. The other thing was last year we had our first user conference in person in February. It was like the last in-person event I remember. (laughs) And we got a thousand people to show up. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But this year we did a user conference virtually and we got 63,000 people registering. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, to go from a thousand in person to 63,000, that's amazing. We got to rent out the Chase Center next time. That's unbelievable. (laughs) That's unbelievable. You're going to get to like Fig Force over here. We're going (laughs) to rent out all of Moscone like Salesforce does. We call it Config. Yeah. But Fig Force is cool too. (laughs) So, okay. I have have so many questions. Well, why don't I start with this? You earlier said that you keep a journal of weekly milestones at Figma. Two questions. Number one, do you do that only for work or do you ever do that for your personal life as well? Only work. Okay. Mostly because nothing's happened in our personal lives for the last 18 months. I mean, and it sure can't get that much more exciting than what's happening at Figma. And then question two, when you reflect back on things, do you only write the positive or do you also write negative things? No, definitely both. And when you look back on the negative things, how do you feel? When I look back on the negative things, I think, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. (laughs) It always feels a lot smaller when you look back on it. But in the moment, you're like, ah, this is what's annoying me this week. But it never feels that significant later on. And do you think partially why you do it is to give yourself that perspective? Oh, for sure. For sure you know, similar to our conversation earlier, like pulling yourself out of the weeds and looking up. Yes. And then how about the wins, the positives? Do you also feel like it wasn't as good as it felt either? Or how do you feel about looking back on the positives? No, I think the positives still hold more value. Maybe not quite as much because you're like, oh, that's so cute how that was that fun big deal at the time. Right, right. But it still, it doesn't get diminished like the negatives. So when you think back on the most positive journal entries that Amanda has done over the last couple of years, what are 
one to two that immediately come to mind? Oh, well, definitely some big hires that I think back on like, wow, that hire that we made really changed things. Because it comes back to a lot of who are you working with and who's making an impact. So I can definitely think of a couple people in particular who have were just, they really changed the trajectory of different areas of the company. And so it's nice to think about that and reflect on that and remind yourself that interviewing is really important. Sourcing good people is really important. And I'm sure, you know, to some extent, Dylan feels the same way about different people he's hired onto the team too. I'm not just saying this because I'm looking at you right now, but I have in my notes that that way that you feel about the hires that the team has made or that you've made is the way that Dylan speaks about you. That's nice. On the negative, are there any, as you think back to those entries, and again, this would have been a real easy opportunity. I'm sure you're thinking, Juven, why couldn't you have prepped me for these questions? I didn't know I was going to go here. I didn't even know you had a journal. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to tell you that either. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the point of the journal. You're not supposed to tell anybody. Are there any negatives, one or two, that are seared in your, in your memory? Obvious low points for Amanda. Well, no. I mean, we're doing really well. You pointed out, like, we're crushing every quarter, so... Nothing's like terrible, but right now I've got 12 direct reports, which doesn't feel good. So I got to solve for that, but that's normal. Right. That's normal. And maybe independent of the business, I think of in the best times, I've been a real not nice person necessarily. I have had expectations or demands that I communicated in really poor ways, as an example, or I reflect back on words that I've used in coaching. The business doesn't hurt me as much as the way that I treated others or was treated. If I got hired on top of, which obviously never happened to you, or like if- It definitely happened to me. At Figma. At Zendesk. How'd you react to it? It's interesting because when I first joined Zendesk, I reported to the CEO. And so I was able to create a, a relationship with him early on. And so I got hired over three or four times. And I always felt like it wasn't that, I mean, it might have bothered me more so on certain ones than others, but it didn't ultimately stop me from caring about the business and what I was trying to do there and the growth I was seeing myself because I had this group of people beyond my boss that I knew really supported me, loved working with me, wanted to see me succeed there. And so that's what mattered. So there was never, maybe I'm just projecting egotistical Jubin here, but there was never moments of proud Amanda feeling like, what the hell? I just did so much. This team wouldn't exist. Yeah. You never had that? There definitely was bits of that. In fact, it was before I got promoted to a VP. There was this one time I reached out to my boss and I said, can you just help me understand like, why are my two colleagues VPs and I'm not? And he said, well, actually, Amanda, 
I was going to surprise you. We're promoting you this Friday. <laughs> so, so yeah, there was definitely moments where I'm like, what is going on here? Why am I not seen the same way? Do you think that gives you empathy now as a leader at Figma, i.e. you're growing so quickly. Obviously, we do our best. You do your best to promote from within wherever possible. It's not always possible. Sure. So having been in those people's shoes, do you feel like, I don't know, you're a better communicator than I probably was? Well, I care a lot about communication, but I'm definitely not perfect at it. So I can totally relate to your low moments being around you and how you are. And yes, absolutely. I think that for sure, when you're earlier in your career, the progression matters. And so I am conscious of, well, Amanda, you're at the top of the game. Like, of course, titles don't matter. So I, I can't say that that way. But I am still passionate about this company is growing so much. There's going to be opportunities that present themselves on a regular basis. And if your mindset is like being open, telling people what you'd like to do so that people know about it and that they can represent you in meetings where you can say, oh yeah, Joe, I know he's interested in this. We should consider him for this opportunity. Then that's how those opportunities happen. So that's the kind of message that I try to promote because I believe in Figma being a great place to learn for everyone there. I have another question for you. Oh, just one more, Jubin, real nice. <laughs> it's surreal having this conversation with you now because the questions that I ask big companies, well-established companies, mainly incredibly successful companies, are starting to feel similar to the questions that I would ask you. So I asked this question to the CRO of Salesforce. I asked this question to Bob Fratty, the CRO of Slack. I've asked this question to a few of these incredible companies. It alludes to the conversation we just had about how every quarter you are blowing it out of the water, right? Like it is nuts. And at some point, how can you tell what and most importantly, who great looks like? If every rep, I don't know what your attainment numbers are, but they must be very high. If every rep is blowing out their quota, how do you separate luck from skill in your shoes? It's a fantastic question that we talk about a lot, actually. All right. I got to come clean. That was from Mamoon. I got to come clean. <laughs> That's a good question, Mamoon. Yeah, because we, a standard company, you don't want everyone hitting the number. Otherwise, your quota is not right. Your number of sales reps isn't right. Something's not right. So yes, we've talked about that a lot. And in fact, we got to a point where we hired enough reps that finally we had a quarter last year that not everyone hit. And it's kind of weird to think you're sort of not celebrating it, but you're like, okay, we're on the good path here. We're like hiring more people. Not everyone's hitting. But in fact, I think this quarter into June, my ops leader said to me, I think everyone might hit Manda. And I, I secretly was like, oh, yay. But then I was like, no. <laughs> so 
I don't know why this blew my mind so much. I've heard Dylan say, he's like, look, we don't have enough people to support the demand. And what you just said, everyone hitting the number is the number one leading indicator of what Dylan is referencing, right? Which is that we cannot hire people fast enough to take quota and territory away from others in order for everyone, like, what a, what a great problem to have. Why can't we support the demand fast enough? We want to hire amazing reps. We want a certain kind of rep at Figma. We're not just like letting anyone in the door. So our hiring is very intentional. We care about diversity. We don't, you know, want all of the same kind of person. And that just throttles the rate at which we hire. We've also wanted to maintain a culture that feels right. And so we've had our hiring at a steady rate that felt like we could control for the culture. I think that the unintended consequence of that is that at times we feel really lean operationally in a kind of constrained, uncomfortable way. And so I think it remains to be seen whether or not that's been the right decision. But it's a trade-off. We decided recently that we have to re-forecast and re-look at our hiring plan every quarter. So that's what we're doing this year. And we just did that in Q2. And so we pulled in some of our 2022 sales hires into Q4 of this year. So we're wanting to accelerate, but it's just, it's like you got to do it in a manner in which you feel like you can handle as an organization. So it's been a balancing act. Okay. But how do you measure then? If that's the case, like if it's not quota attainment, I feel like we're in ridiculous territory. If it's like, you know, the person that did 130% is not good anymore because we're averaging 160%. The other problem is Figma doesn't discount. So you can't actually see someone negotiating because they're generally not negotiating price. You can't measure percent discount averages across cohorts of teams. How do you measure it? (laughs) (laughs) I know I I didn't answer your question completely because I don't have a great answer. But but when you join a company like Figma at the stage, you're not just always thinking about the pure sales job of prospecting and closing deals, but you're helping also define process. So some people stand out because they are really part of a team. They're sharing their learnings with each other. They're helping define better process. They're pointing out what's broken and how to fix it. So they're showing leadership in other kinds of ways. And they might get recognition from our users in different ways, and that stands out. They might get recognition from their supporting colleagues in legal and marketing and whatnot, and that might stand out. So certain people definitely do stand out for reasons other than their attainment. I will say, playing devil's advocate, it is absolutely a recruiting superpower because you can put a candidate in front of anybody on the sales team and they've made a bunch of money and they've blown out their number. And so you can literally say nobody misses their number. And so you can start 
to obviously like a lot of people who want to be a part of that. And I think you can start to be very deliberate about who you bring on. Is that fair? Is that how it's manifested? I think so. I think so. We haven't had much attrition because we haven't needed to, and it hasn't organically happened either. So yeah, I think that is a testament to our hiring for sure. Can you please explain leaders, fillers, and killers? (laughs) I loved this. I was obsessed with it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, at Zendesk, we did a project with Simon Kucher Partners, the pricing consultancy, and they had this framework they described to us about leaders, fillers, and killers. And if you think about like a McDonald's super meal, the leader in a bundle is your burger. It's what people buy the bundle for. It's the lead product or feature, if you will. And then the fillers are the things that are also in your bundle that are like nice additions that people like, but they're not necessarily buying the bundle for the fries and the drink. They're buying the bundle for the burger, but they like the fries and the drink. And then the killer is like if you added something into your bundle that most people don't want because you might think, oh, well, I'm, I'm adding a coffee into this bundle. It's like a free thing. They're like... People are getting it something that they were unexpecting to get. But the unfortunate part is the killer actually devalues the entire bundle because people's reaction is not like, oh, I get a free coffee, even if I'm not going to drink it. They're like, nope, I don't want to pay for a coffee. Don't put that in the bundle. So you have to be careful that your packaging doesn't include killers because it kills the whole bundle. What an incredible framework that's so simple. Figma just released a new product called Fig Jam. Yes. It is being given away for free for this entire year. First of all, if I'm Myro or like these competitors, they're so screwed. I, like, I actually had friends that were interviewing and I, I legitimately said, don't do it. You are going to regret this. Like this is, this is not the war path that you want to be steamrolled on. I promise you. So anyway... You release this incredible product and it's a whiteboarding solution, online whiteboarding solution. Using the framework of that pricing that of leaders, fillers, and killers, okay? How do you make sure that when you release new products like this or others, that it continues to, in your customer's mind, serve as a leader? Well, I think that we don't have a lot of history of, this at Figma because we've been a one product company for a while, right? right? Our primary focus has been, you know, building a fast, collaborative design user interface platform, right? So FigJam being an online whiteboarding tool, what that's doing for us is providing more people to be part of the design process because it's a tool that you can use whatever team you're in. It's integrated with Figma, so it makes a lot of sense for people who collaborate with designers, but any of your listeners could be FigJam users. And so it's a really fun product to make meetings more interactive. We use it a lot in our meetings, and people really like the way that meetings have evolved as a result of it. I think because we've offered it free for a year, we basically bought ourselves time to understand how people use it, how it grows inside a company. 
because it does have a, a different usage pattern than Figma, the design platform. And so we're learning a lot. We have some competitors. I mean, online whiteboarding is a hot space right now with everyone working from home. So there's lots of competitors out there. And so we analyze prices of our competitors and we put out our first version of the product in April and it's being adopted a lot within our own user base. And right now, the way that we packaged it is actually very similar to Figma. So as you use the free product, you get actually a ton of value in the free version, but the plan is to model it similarly to Figma where as you pay, you're paying for more admin features, more features that larger companies are likely to be willing to pay for and able to pay for security features and, and things like that. I have a smile on my face. I'm glad we're on the same team here. Okay, a couple more <laughs> questions and I promise I will get you out of here. Your reputation is that you're someone that's very calm, cool, collected, just generally quite neutral. Like you never get too high or, or too low. Within the context of work, how much do you think seeing scale at Zendesk, just knowing what that rate of change feels like, how much do you think that's given you the confidence to be calm in the eye of the storm when, as you say, you can run, you know, I think operationally lean might be putting it nicely sometimes. Do you think that gives you a lot of confidence from your previous experience? To a certain extent, yes, of course. I have in my head who we should hire next. And I didn't have that at Zendesk. I didn't have the experience to know what's going to happen in the next 12 months, whereas I, I have a much clearer idea of that. But at the same time, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, what's my next play after Zendesk, I knew one thing in particular, which was I didn't want to go work at another customer service platform company. And there was a lot of them out there. So I really wanted to do something different. And so Figma has a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences. We're actually growing a lot faster than Zendesk did. And so sometimes I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I got to throw everything out the window. Like this is different. And really think about how we can evolve Figma in a way that's right for Figma. So yes, I come with more confidence because of that experience, but I'm still learning a ton. We didn't have a freemium model at Zendesk. We've got one at Figma, drives a ton of inbound demand, which means part of our opportunity is how do we segment all of these people that come try out Figma and focus our energy on the ones that make the most sense for us to focus the right level of, of energy on. And then We've got enterprise customers like early on in our trajectory here. So it wasn't the story of SMB being pulled up market. We are very squarely up market already. And so that's really interesting. And then this second product of Big Jam is also, it's a much broader audience of people that are using it. So it, it means a lot on the go-to-market side of like, how do we market it and sell it? Because we're used to selling to a certain persona. And now we've got a lot more personas that we want to attract and, and speak to. So 
there's a lot of new things that are interesting for me to learn about and grow with. And so it's a, it's a mix of confidence and still like deer in the headlights. <laughs> in the deer in the headlights thing, Harley Finkelstein, the president of Shopify, put it really well, which is that Shopify, like Figma, had this insane growth. To my point earlier, where it's in very, very, very difficult for any individual to keep up with this rate of change. And so he took it as a test. Like he had this insecurity where the seasoned leader is going to get hired on top of me if I don't learn at or ahead of the pace of this business. How do you think about that? How do you learn at the speed of light at this point? And then how do you help your team embody that mindset as well? Does the question make sense? I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I lead sales and marketing and at most companies you get rid of your sales and marketing leaders every few years. So I'm not immune to that. And I recognize like maybe my time, you know, runs out before I think it should. But so I, I feel like I'm always sort of in the back of my head prepared for that. If that, if it comes to that, but at the same time, like I want to keep learning. So I'm very eager to figure out like what is unique about this business and how can we really make the most of it. One of the things that's really energized me is our community. And I think community is a big part of our success and how we treat our community. And, you know, one of our investors at a holiday party, not Mamoon, said, you know, Amanda, you guys make it look so easy, like this whole brand thing you've got going on and how people love you. Like, I thought that wasn't that hard. But then I look at some of my other portfolio companies, and they just don't know how to do it. And I said, well, it takes a lot of work. It's good that it, we make it look easy, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of really thinking about how people are going to respond to us? How should we be communicating things and empathizing with our users? So yeah, I learned a ton about community marketing and selling and how a bottoms up motion can really be this magical marriage with a tops down motion. And, and not that many companies have figured out how to do that well. And so I'm learning a lot about how that works at Figma and how we can make it even better. So yeah, there's always a bit of needing to push myself to keep up. You just uh, raised a $10 billion valuation. You have celebrations to do. Knowing you, you're probably going to go back to working. I would encourage you to please not and, and maybe take <laughs> this day and enjoy a small milestone of the work that you've done to get the business to this point. I wish I had hours more. Amanda, thank you. This was unbelievable. I asked the same questions at the end of each of these. The first, what does the word grit mean to you? You know, I just last night finished watching The Alone Season 7. Have you seen that? I have no idea what that is. It's a reality show about these people in the wilderness. And man, they have got grit. But if I had to describe grit based on that, grit is about being okay with suffering. We get dealt cards every day in life. And I think how we react and manage those cards is really a testament to grit. In my house, we like to utter the borrowed phrase, 
when you're in hell, just keep going. <laughs> um, and often in my personal life, especially, I find myself doing things that are really hard and actually not very enjoyable in the moment. So I have to remind myself all the time that the things that I'm most proud of in my life are the things that I had to have a lot of grit to get through. So that's what comes to my mind when I hear that word. How am I going to ask this besides the are you hiring question? <laughs> so you earlier mentioned that you can see the next hires that you need to make in the next six to 12 months. Are there any key hires that come to mind right now for you in the next six to 12 months that you want to shout out? Otherwise, you're hiring across the board, presumptively, in every role and function at this company, not just sales and go to market, but certainly there. For sure. And how would one get a hold of you? Yes, we are definitely hiring across the board in sales in particular, but in marketing, we've got a number of roles on our site today. We are also maybe one that's not up there thinking about a demand gen growth marketing leader is one top of mind for me. And then on the brand design side, we need to hire some brand designers into the team as well. So design is always a fun place to be at a design company. So it's a hot place for us to be hiring in. And best way to reach me is probably over LinkedIn. I check that all the time. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.